Well, today we're continuing in chapter 21 of our Confession of Faith, which is titled, Of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. Um, today, our, our, our lesson last week, this is part 11, our lesson last week, lesson 10, kind of wrapped up a look that we took at the nature of conscience itself. Um, Chapter 21 of our confession doesn't really go in great depth uh, of what conscience is, how it works, what its nature is, kind of assumes you understand all that. Um, And so we we took a little bit of a rabbit trail, you could say, from from, uh, explicitly what the confession is talking about to have a deeper understanding of what conscience is in general. And the reason for this is, at the time when our confession of faith was written, um, your, your average Christian, not, not even your average Christian, your average person in the West had a much deeper understanding of conscience, uh, of the nature of the soul, and things like that, that we really kind of don't have today. Um, part of that is because even though we as Christians are not strictly materialists, we don't believe that there is only matter in the universe, we believe there is also spiritual uh, things as well. Nevertheless, we, we are still in many ways affected by the materialistic world that we live in, and I would say one of those ways is that we have a very truncated understanding of what the soul is, um, whereas, you know, 400 years ago, whole treatises, volumes were written on the nature of the soul, um, and so all that to say the confession kind of assumes in its own time, you understand what it's talking about when it says conscience, Um, But we took kind of a a long detour to really develop a biblical doctrine of conscience. Um, And so having done that, we're kind of now coming back more to the explicit text of the confession itself. Um, And then after that, we should, uh, maybe two or three more lessons, we'll move on to chapter 22. Before we do, though, we still have to look at a very important element of the doctrine of conscience, which is the binding of conscience. What does it mean for a conscience to be bound or free, on the other hand? Furthermore, in what sense, and this is especially important in our own day, in what sense do human laws, whether considering civil laws or even ecclesiastical law, and you might think, well, we don't have ecclesiastical laws. Yes, we do in a certain sense. It's called our constitution and bylaws. Uh, We have all kinds of other ecclesiastical laws we've made, such as we will meet at 3 p.m. for for public worship, those kinds of things, ecclesiastical laws. In what sense, if at all, do human laws bind the conscience? It's a very important question to have a deep understanding into, especially when you're considering the honor and submission that is due to a lawful authority. And by lawful, I don't simply mean law and order, the civil government. I mean all kinds of lawful authorities that God has ordained. We could, we could talk about the civil government. We could talk about the authority of the church. The church has authority over its members. The authority of elders. The authority of a husband over a wife and the authority over parents, of parents over their children Those are all lawful authorities established by God, and yet in what sense can they be said to bind the conscience, if at all? It's a very, very important question, Um, and there are two ways we can veer to. There's two extremes, and we want to avoid both of them. This was a very important issue in the Reformation, especially, um, particularly when you're dealing with the authority of the popes and church councils. Um, the authority of the church itself to make and establish ecclesiastical laws um, or doctrines. And so the Reformers spent a lot of time writing, um, really as an apologetic for why what they did by not submitting to the Pope in all things or church councils in all things, why that was permissible. Um, And a lot of that had to do with the binding of conscience. Um, And so... um, We have a lot of good stuff uh, about that in in church history, and we'll look into that. Let's go ahead and dive into this. If you have your confession of faith, go ahead and open up to chapter 21, and we'll begin by reading paragraph 2. Chapter 21, paragraph 2. 
says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. I, I, I want to read the whole thing, but that's a very important thing. Sometimes people will often say, well, as long as it's not contrary to the word, it can be binding. But it says if God doesn't speak about it, it's not binding in a certain sense, right? So that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience, we'll see what that means, that has a very specific meaning, is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith, an absolute blind obedience, is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason altogether. All right, well, let's go ahead and walk through this. First, it says, God alone is Lord of conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. That right there, you could very much say, is partly a, summar, a summarization of the Reformation. Um, it, it connects to the concept of sola scriptura um, because it says, as, as are not found in his word or contrary to his word, right? But that right, right there is, is very much the rallying cry of the Lutherans and the Reformed um, that God alone, not the Pope, not the church, not your pastor, not a king, not an emperor, not your husband, all the ladies are like, yeah, um, not your parents, all the kids are like, all right, this is great, right? Anarchy. Um, none of those can be said to be Lord of conscience. That belongs to God alone. But what exactly does that mean that God alone is the Lord of conscience? Here I want to ask you guys, open it up a bit for discussion. Um, what does it mean when we say God is Lord of conscience? What do you think that means? Okay. Okay. Well, let me say this then: Was Israel uh, were their priests lords of their conscience then, since they didn't uh, interact directly with God? Okay. I'll kind of disagree with you there a little bit. We'll get there. These are good. I'm, ask, I'm probing so that we, we're going to bump into some things here. That's why I'm asking. Carlos? Kind of, but also not quite. You know, I think of, um, I think of Christ. He, he lambasts, it's a great word, he lambasts the, the Pharisees for exalting the commandments of men, uh, the traditions of men, instead of the commandments of God. And yet he also says to the people, obey the Pharisees in all things that they command you, for they sit in the seat of Moses, right? Now, not in all things, right? Well, that's why we need a lot of nuance. Um, but I think you're getting, you're, you're getting close to as well because you're getting to the idea of judgment, right, in a certain sense. Only God can truly judge. Um, but yeah, maybe not the fullest. Anything else? And then we'll look into it. Yeah, we'll have to give an account. We could also say only God truly knows the conscience. 
Um, so there's part of that as well. I think we're all kind of bumping into things. Um, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll jump into this. I kind of wanted just to get us thinking, because there are going to be some, a lot of nuances here we need to grapple with. Um, I think one simple way to think about this <clears throat> is to say, in general, what does it mean for someone to be Lord of someone else? That kind of language is found all throughout Scripture and even outside of Scripture, but what does that really mean? Typically, I would say, for someone to be Lord, or same thing as master, um, means for them to have lawful power and authority over someone else, particularly to command them, right? Um, Another term used commonly to express the same idea of commanding, having power to command someone, um, is one I've already mentioned, binding, to bind. If you can bind someone, um, well, I guess we could say a thief could bind someone. Okay, well, we don't mean that. But if you can bind someone, typically you have lawful authority over them to command them and even to bind them if necessary. Perkins says, that which binds the conscience is that thing whatsoever which hath power and authority over conscience to order it, okay? So, because a lot of times people, we don't really know what it means to bind. It simply means to command something. You, you can command something to do something, all right? This term uh, of binding is very much metaphorical. It's a, a way of speaking of power, but it comes from the very literal power and authority to bind someone, to arrest someone. Um, That's where it originates from. The opposite verb is to loose, to release someone, right? Um, What does Pilate say to Christ? Don't you know I have the power to release you, right? Uh, Meaning I also have the power to bind. Um, For example, in Acts chapter 9, after the risen Christ appears to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, the Lord appears to Ananias, the disciple, tells him to go to Saul, and Ananias says to the Lord kind of warily, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Well, metaphorically, that, that, that understanding of bind is speaking of authority um, is applied to... to um, being a lord, being able to bind, it's kind of synonymous with having authority. And so when we speak of the power to bind conscience, we are speaking of the power to command conscience. Perkins says, to bind conscience is to urge, cause, and constrain it in every action, either to accuse for sin or excuse for well-doing, or to say, this may be done or it may not be done, okay? Now, as we've seen with other discussions of conscience, there are some concepts um, which are more nuanced and take a second to fully grasp, um, and that was the case with this one. In fact, I normally finish Sunday school early in the week. It's kind of like I don't even work on my sermon first. It's like a nice entryway into my work week because it's more just thinking. You don't have to like think of how do I preach this text, right? Um, I didn't finish this till last night because I had to grapple with some of the, the nuances and Perkins and other writers, um, and I, I know they're smarter than I am, and so when they th- say things that sound contradictory, I'm like, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that William Perkins is probably the one who's not wrong, and it's probably me. Um, but there's some very nuanced concepts here, okay, Um, So let me say, Perkins is saying something quite specific about the binding of conscience. Let me read it again, and we'll try to unpack it. He says, to bind the conscience is to urge, cause, and constrain it in every action, either to accuse for sin or to excuse for well-doing, or to say this may be done or it may not be done. Now, what that means is that the binding of conscience doesn't really mean, or sorry, doesn't merely mean you have to obey someone or some law, but it means more than that. 
It means that you have to affirm in conscience, not just in your actions, in your conscience, that to not obey such a law would be in and of itself sin. Okay, let me say that again. It means that the binding of conscience doesn't merely mean you have to obey someone or some law, but it means more than that, that to affirm in conscience to not obey such a law would be in and of itself sin, okay? Now, to demonstrate a little bit of this nuance, what I'm trying to get at, I would say that there are times when you and I have to obey a law for the sake of conscience, but not in conscience. What? We have to obey a law for the sake of conscience, but not in conscience. Or to say it another way, our conscience may be free and not bound by God to a certain law, and yet we still ought to, not in all cases, as we'll see, okay, but we still ought to generally obey the law for the sake of conscience, but not necessarily in conscience, okay? You might be like, okay, I don't know what you're talking about. Let me read Perkins just to show you I'm not <clears throat> making this up. He says, Magistracy, or the magistrate, civil government, indeed is an ordinance of God to which we owe subjection. But how far subjection is due, there is the question. For body, goods, and outward conversation, I grant all. For body, goods, and outward conversation, and conversation there, we'll see, doesn't just mean talking. It has a, a broader meaning. I grant all. So we are, to be, um, we are to be subject to the civil government in body, goods, and outward conversation, okay? Now, in what way are we subject to the civil government with body? Well, a local court, a local judge might uh, issue some kind of a a something, what's it called? A summons for you to appear in court, right? Um, and if it's generally lawful, right, there's always, we'll see, there, there are some uh, ways in which you don't have to always do that. But generally, they can command you for your body to appear in court, and you better, right? You better be in subjection. As far as your goods, we could say your wealth. Um, government can command taxes, right? Sorry, Taxation is not always theft, okay? Um, it can be lawful indeed, and they, have, they can command your goods. You owe them subjection. It says this all the time in Scripture. Lastly, outward conversation. Um, outward conversation, conversation, you see this all the time. I, I used to think, because uh, Puritans would say, well, we look at, to see if someone's a true Christian, sometimes you look at their conversation, and I was like, whoa. Look at how much value they put on the words that come out of their mouth. Conversation can generally just mean like your behavior in life. It can also mean uh, like commerce, business dealings, and things like that. Uh, I think what this is generally talking about here when he says we owe them subjection in our outward conversation, um, it, it could be generally your outward behavior to some degree. Um, there might be things that that are regulated and forbidden to do. Um, if you go to a certain place and you want to just start a fire, they're like, no, you can't start a fire in the middle of the road. I'm sorry. Um, you can't do that here. There's a place to start a fire. It's not here, okay? Your, your outward, uh, even business dealings, they um, obviously we, don't, we wouldn't attribute this absolute control, but they have a, an ability to regulate. They might make you get a license for something, things like that. Perkins is saying, I grant subjection to civil government in all of those things. But now listen to what he says. And this is where we hear the nuance, and at first it sounds contradictory, okay? But a subjection of conscience to man's laws, I deny. Oh, interesting. So your person is to some degree subject um, your, your wealth, your dealings are all subject to civil government, but he says a subjection of conscience to man's laws, I deny. Now, what he means by that is that there are some things in which God has not commanded something specifically. Um, it's not, as our confession says, it's not contrary to the word, nor is it contained in the word, and we call these things things indifferent, Okay? 
In those things, we are largely to obey. Largely. There are exceptions. Um, but largely speaking, there are things that are, are relatively indifferent, which we are bound to obey, uh, obey for the sake of conscience, but not in conscience. Let's say, for example, a, a local government um, enacts a law that on a certain stretch of highway, um, it's not grounded in nothing, okay, but we'll say on a certain stretch of highway you can go 75 miles per hour. Um, is that anywhere commanded by God's word? No. Um, is it contrary to God's word? No, not really. I don't think so, right? Well, um, you are bound to not go past 75 miles per hour. You are bound in your driving to do it, but you are not bound in your conscience um, to that law. And what that means is you don't have to say in your conscience going over 75 miles per hour is in and of itself sinful. Because then you might come to another stretch of highway where you have to go 65 miles per hour, right? Again, they're not arbitrary necessarily. They're not based on nothing. Perhaps there's more traffic in one area. Um, where I'm from in California, if you're driving in huge desert stretches, typically um, the, the speed limit goes higher, right? Because you're just, you're flying. No one wants to get stuck in the desert. You're trying to get out of there. If you're going near a school zone, it's like what? 15, 20 miles an hour, something like that, right? But those things, in and of themselves, because they're not contrary to God's word nor contained in it, are things indifferent, and therefore God has not bound us in conscience to affirm this is sin, and to do to violate this in all cases, in and of itself, is sin. Okay? That's what it means to bind conscience. Again, it's to direct conscience to say this is in and of itself sin. And only the Lord um, has that kind of authority. Let me give you another example uh, from another sphere of life. Uh, this last week, Anik and I had a discussion. Um, I didn't have to, like, put my proverbial foot down, right? I don't think I've ever had to, like, hardcore do that, okay? Um, but we had a discussion, and I was like, I really don't want to do that. And she's like, please, can you consider it? And so I was like, okay. Dwell with my wife and understanding here, and um, I was able to convince her we're not going to do this thing. And what it was is she wanted she she loves finding deals on Facebook Marketplace. She loves finding deals anywhere, and there was a lady who was selling supposedly a Target gift card for the value of three hundred dollars, and she was selling it for one hundred and fifty dollars. And she told Annika, "You can even I'll even go to the store with you, and you can have them." read what the value is. You can see it's 300 and then you pay me. And I'm like, this is just too good to be true. Uh, there's got to be a scam in here somewhere. Um, and so I said, let, let's say I did proverbially put my foot down and say, no, I don't, I don't want you to buy that. I don't think that's something we should do, okay? Now, she is bound to obey me as her husband because I'm a lawful authority, but she's not bound in her conscience to say that the purchasing of that gift card is in and of itself sin, because there might be another couple with far less wisdom <laughs> who would say, I don't know, kind of sounds legit. She seems like a nice lady. She has a good rating. Yeah, go ahead and buy it. They haven't sinned, though. Perhaps they've been unwise. Perhaps they've been naive. I wouldn't go so far as to say they've broken a commandment of God or anything like that, right? And so that's what it means to be in subjection to a lawful authority for the sake of conscience, but not necessarily in conscience. Perkins explains, between these two, there is a great difference to be subject to authority in conscience and to be subject to it for conscience as will be manifest if we do but consider the phrase of the apostle. Now here he's referring to Romans chapter 13. Paul says, Therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. He continues, Perkins, The meaning whereof is that we must perform obedience not only for wrath, that is for the avoiding of punishment, but also for the avoiding of sin. And so by consequent 
for the avoiding of a breach in conscience. So to disobey civil government generally, again, I know we will look at there's, there's times when you don't. Okay, we'll, we'll get to that. Generally, though, to disobey government is a breach of conscience. It's sin. But not for the sake of that law itself, if it's a thing indifferent, but rather because God has invested civil government with lawful authority. Okay? Perkins says, Now this breach of conscience is not properly made because man's law is neglected, but because God's law is broken, which ordaineth civil government, and which nevertheless binds men's conscience to obey their lawful commandments. So God has given a command which your conscience is bound in conscience to obey, namely to be subject to civil government, okay? But it hasn't given a command in that specific thing, and so your conscience is free in conscience from that specific law, though you are still bound in conscience to the general command of obedience to civil government, okay? Does that make sense? Now, we will get back to more specific questions of different kinds of situations, um, exceptions to the rule, right? Uh, But the point I'm trying to establish here at the beginning is that when we're speaking of the binding of conscience, it means much more than to say you have to obey such and such a law or commandment. It goes beyond that to say your conscience is constrained to affirm that the thing in and of itself is sin or in and of itself is morally good and required. Only God has that authority. Therefore, God alone is Lord of conscience, okay? Now, again, uh, there might be a commandment that is not contained in the Word of God. Um, It's technically a thing indifferent, and in certain cases, it may be sin to do a thing, either because it causes unnecessary offense We've kind of already seen that a little bit with meat sacrificed to idols, or because it disobeys a legitimate authority, but in and of itself, it is not sin, okay? Um, This is kind of the idea, this is kind of the thing that Paul is getting at when he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He's kind of getting at that same thing. Um, Eating meat sacrificed to idols might be sin in a certain Uh, If there's a certain circumstance attached to it, um, it's in front of your brother, it causes him to sin, Um, but in and of itself, I'm persuaded that nothing is unclean. It's a thing indifferent, okay? Well, let's here go a little bit further. Here, we would say that properly speaking, only God can bind the conscience, There is a sense in which even human laws, in a sense, can bind the conscience, however, okay? I know that kind of sounds contradictory to what I just said a little bit, but but just track with me. Um, Even human laws can bind the conscience, but properly speaking, only God and His law can, okay? Perkins explains the binder of conscience, that which binds it, is either proper or improper. Proper is that thing which has absolute and sovereign power in and of itself to bind the conscience. And that is the Word of God written in the books of the Old and New Testament. So God, His will as made manifest in His Word, is the only proper thing that can bind conscience, okay? Because only God has sovereign, absolute authority to bind conscience. Here I think of Luther's famous statement at the Diet of Worms, um, which, you know, whether he truly said it or not, some people think maybe this was added later, it's orthodox in terms of conscience. He says, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, now he's not saying there, um, I was having discussions about this with someone else, um, he's not saying there that plain reason and Scripture are equal. This is a common way of speaking. You see this in Reformed theologians all the time. You see this the particular Baptist. Um, it's even in, uh, it's not in our confession. You see a f- similar phrase to this in the Westminster Confession, however, in which they'll often speak of the Word of God and the light of nature, or the Word of God and right reason, okay? Um, what they mean by that is that you can use right reason in certain things, but it's always subject to Scripture. And that's clearly, uh, that's 
um, clearly the sense in which Luther means it, right? Unless, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive, we could say bound, it's kind of the same thing, to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant against anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Okay? Amen. God alone and his will is revealed in Holy Scripture alone can properly bind conscience. Next, Perkins gives uh, a, a few supporting reasons to prove this. They're, they're very good. I've chosen to include them. Um, we'll kind of stagger them as we go along, but I just want to read them. Reason number one, he which is the Lord of conscience by his word and laws binds conscience. But God only is Lord of conscience because he created the conscience and he alone governs it and, and none but he knows it. It's kind of getting to what you had mentioned on a little bit. Therefore, his word, laws, his word and laws only bind the conscience properly. Only God created the conscience and only he truly knows it. Therefore, only he can command it. Okay? Two, he which hath power to save or destroy the conscience for the keeping or breaking of his laws hath absolute power to bind the soul and conscience by the same laws. But the first is true of God alone, meaning only God can save and destroy a conscience. He continues, James 3.12, there is only one lawgiver which is able to save and destroy. Isaiah 33.22, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, and he will save us. Therefore, Perkins says, the word of God alone is by an absolute and, uh, by an absolute and sovereign power binds conscience. Then he says, it's kind of funny, because this point is so clear of itself, further proof is needless. Um, except he will give some more uh, proof in a second here. Now here he says, hence we are taught sundry points of instruction. First, such as are ignorant among us must labor to get knowledge of God's word because it binds conscience. This is true. We saw this already in terms of the obtaining and maintaining of a good conscience. But another reason why we must familiarize ourselves with God's word and his law is because it alone binds conscience. He continues, neither will the plea of ignorance serve for excuse. Because whether we know God's laws or know them not, they still bind us. And we are bound not only to do them, but when we know them not, we are further bound not to be ignorant of them, but to seek to know them. If we had no more sins, our ignorance were sufficient to condemn us. Okay. Next, he says, God's word is to be obeyed, though we should offend all men. Yea, lose all men's favor and suffer the greatest damage that may be, even the loss of our lives. And the reason is at hand because God's word hath this prerogative to bridle, bind, and restrain the conscience. Here I think of Peter and John speaking to the council. Whether it is right to obey you or God, you be the judge. We can do nothing but testify to what we have seen, right? Though, though all men be offended, and, and we'll see, um, this is important, we will see there's, there's a time in which perhaps someone has requested something of you, um, and either because they are a lawful authority, or maybe they don't even have authority over you, yet to not give an unnecessary offense, you still submit to them, right? To, we see, we, we discuss this, how Paul does this, um, so that the gospel is not hindered, uh, so that brothers and sisters uh, are not grieved in their soul. Nevertheless, right, for, for obeying God's word and those things which he has commanded and forbidden, we are to do them, though we should offend all men, right? Um, okay, he says some other stuff. We'll move on a little bit with the time we have left. All right, we're doing good. Thus much of the proper binder of conscience. Now follows the improper, the improper binder of conscience. He says, 
The improper binder is that which hath no power or virtue in itself. Conscience... My, my printer chewed up this page. I'm not totally sure. I think I lost a word. I think it says, <laughs> The improper binder is that which hath no power or virtue in itself to command conscience, but doth it only by virtue of God's word or of some part of it. This is where I said, in a certain sense, even man's laws can bind conscience, but still only improperly, meaning, as he says, not because of any, quote, power or virtue in itself to bind conscience, but only by virtue of God's word or some part of it. So I can command my child, clean up your room. And in a certain sense, because I am his father and God has invested me with authority, um, I can be said to even bind his conscience, but only improperly. If God had not established parents as an authority over their children, right, I, I would not be able to do that, okay? So I don't have a power or authority in and of myself. He's given it to me, and even those things which I command must be um, or ought to be for some purpose um, or in some way related to the purposes for which I've been given that authority, okay? Um, okay, let's see. So, for example, let's say civil government passes a law that forbids abortion. Well, that's not a thing indifferent, right? That is a morally good law. And in that sense, we may say that even that, though it was given by humans, it binds, though given by humans, and we could even go so far as to say, in a certain sense, because it's explicitly from God's Word, it's not a thing indifferent, you could even say it's divine, in a certain sense. Perkins says, if the, if the case fall out, as commonly it does, that human laws be not enacted of things indifferent, but of things that be good in themselves, that is, commanded by God, then they are not human properly, but divine laws. Men's laws in treating of things that are morally good and the parts of God's worship are the same with God's law and therefore bind the conscience, not because they were enacted by men, but because they were first made by God, men being no more but instruments and ministers in his name to revive, renew, and to put in execution such precepts and laws as prescribe the worship of God standing in the practice of true religion and virtue. Okay? Now, an example of this kind of thing, we would say that there would be all kinds of things um, within our constitution and bylaws. Let me give you an example of one that's not. Um, we have made, you could say, we have, by order of the church in a church meeting, um, and out of necessity, because we meet at another church, said we will meet at 3 p.m. And if some church member were to say, well, that's nowhere in God's word, um, it's a thing indifferent, there's nothing in and of itself binding and morally good about meeting at 3 p.m., I'm going to meet at 10 a.m., or we're going to have our own worship here in the same building. No. And if you were to continue to do so, you would be, um, that would be flying in the face of church authority. And to continue to really push that, right, um, might even, would potentially even get you disciplined in the long run, even though meeting at 3 p.m. is a thing indifferent. There are, however, things expressly commanded by God, but they're even found in our Constitution and bylaws. For example, things... Uh, that don't give direct quotes, but they summarize passages of Scripture, either describing the office of elder or deacon, um, duties of church members, duties of pastors, all kinds of things which uh, are in sovereign, sovereign joys, constitution and bylaws. Our constitution and bylaws are not Holy Scripture, and yet they're so directly uh, drawn from Scripture that in that sense we could say, in a certain sense, it's even divine, even though given by man, okay? Not all things in the Constitution are. Um, for example, we could say uh, the number of members required to have a quorum, okay? Those things are, are matters indifferent, not unimportant. Um, we'll look later. Those things are to be governed by the light of nature and Christian prudence. Um, they're not arbitrary, but they're also indifferent. 
to some degree. Um, another church somewhere might say, well, you need a three-fifths majority, you need a three-fourths majority, and it's not sin necessarily to disagree on that, okay? Okay, Perkins says, necessary obedience is to be performed both to civil and ecclesiastical jurisdiction, but that they have a constraining power to bind conscience as properly as God's law does. It is not yet proved, neither can it be, okay? Um, And I think that that kind of understanding of the binding of conscience uh, with the nuance that it has is often very much lacking in our own day. Um, I think you would probably hear a lot of well-meaning Christians, I think, a lot of godly Christians who do not have kind of a Reformation understanding of conscience and God's law, um, who when they hear you say something like, I am not bound in conscience, in conscience to obey man's laws, they're like, whoa, you're an antinomian, okay? It's a much more nuanced understanding, and yet that nuanced understanding helps us to navigate certain difficulties, right? And if you don't have that, you're going to fall to one end or to the other, either being, you know, slavishly in subjection when you ought not be, or being rebellious when you ought to be in subjection, okay? Now, with the time we have left, um, we will look at a few arguments, uh, actually just one that Perkins mentions, um, which is raised by Catholics. Uh, He largely interacts with uh, Catholic arguments because they are saying um, that both civil and ecclesiastical authorities can bind the conscience. Um, And then we'll look at one of his positive, or two of his positive arguments. He makes good arguments. Um, But listen to what he says. It's kind of funny. You might hear even some of your Reformed Christians today, um, and actually, according to Perkins, they're making a Roman Catholic argument about the conscience. Kind of interesting, okay? But he says, touching human laws, the special point to be considered is in what manner they bind. That this may be in part cleared, I will stand a while to examine and confute the opinion that the very pillars of the Popish Church at this day maintain. Namely, that civil and ecclesiastical jurisdiction have a coactive, coercive power in the conscience, and that the laws made thereby do as truly and properly bind as God's law in itself. The arguments which they commonly use are these. Now, he gives like 15, and they're largely dealing with individual passages. That's why we're not going to look at this, um, at at all of them. But I'm going to mention one, and I kind of want to, we'll do a little quiz time again. He says, this is another one, they argue God's authority binds conscience. Do you guys agree with that? The magistrate's authority is God's authority. Do you guys agree with that? Therefore, magistrate's authority binds conscience properly. Now, that's a syllogism. I'm going to say it again, and I want you to tell me where the fault is in the syllogism, okay? God's authority binds conscience. Magistrate's authority is God's, con- is God's authority. Therefore, magistrate's authority binds conscience properly. Where is the flaw in that syllogism? An equivalence with what? Uh, but, to play devil's advocate, doesn't Paul say that whoever resists the lawful authorities resists that which God has put in place? So, don't magistrates have God's authority and backing by, in some ways? <laughs> yes. What do you say to that? Counter? Or do you have something? Okay. Can they not command other things indifferent, though? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Did you have something to say? Yes. Yes. Shay, come up right here and sit at my right hand. Um, no, you guys are all getting it. 
it's a thing. Perkins says, God's authority may be taken two ways. First, for that sovereign and absolute power which he has over all his creatures. Secondly, for that finite and limited power which he hath ordained that men shall exercise over men. If the minor, meaning the minor premise, namely that a magistrate's authority is God's authority, be taken in the first sense that magistrates, and I think you were kind of getting at this a little bit, Carlos, but I I was just playing devil's advocate with you. Uh, If it be taken in the first sense that magistrates have absolute sovereign power, it is false. That premise is false. For sovereign, the sovereign power of God is incommunicable. If it be taken in the second sense, the proposition, the, the last conclusion is false, namely that magistrates' authority binds conscience, or properly. For there be sundry authorities ordained of God as the authority of the father over the child, of the master over the servant, the authority of uh, the schoolmaster over his scholars, which do not properly bind conscience as God's authority, uh, as the authority of God's law doth. Okay? So um, you have to distinguish between the two kinds of authorities, and yet sometimes you can often hear people kind of appeal to this verse, sometimes in a very blanket sense, um, in a way that almost kind of doesn't distinguish the two, right? Um, I've been trying to read more about syllogisms and stuff like that later, so, or lately, so I had fun with that. Um, next, I'll give, uh, with the time we have, uh, just two more positive arguments which Perkins gives for why God's law only properly binds. They're both good. First, he says, he that can make laws as truly binding conscience as God's laws can also prescribe rules of God's worship. Because to bind the conscience is nothing else but to cause it to excuse for things that are well done and therefore truly please God, and to accuse for sin whereby God is dishonored. But no man can prescribe rules of God's worship, and human laws, as they are human laws, appoint not the service of God. And here he points to Matthew 15, 9. They worship me in vain, teaching doctrines which are the commandments of men. I've pointed this out to, to Roman Catholics in the past who say, well, the church, has, the church can make laws, meaning properly binding laws for the worship of God, right? Um, well, if that's the case, you believe the church existed before Christ came in some sense, and they'd say, yeah, right? Then why does Christ fault the Pharisees here? If, in fact, they had that authority, he says elsewhere they do, they sit in the place of Moses, they are the judges of the land, but he faults them, for teaching as, command, uh, uh, as doctrines things which are commandments of, of men. Now, here he has a really good argument. Listen to what he says. Papists here give the answer that by laws of men, we understand such laws as being unlawful and unprofitable, being made without the authority of God or the instinct of His Spirit. They're saying, well, the reason why Christ faulted them is because the things with they, which they were commanding were contrary to God's word, okay? He says, It is true indeed that these commandments of men were unlawful, but the cause must be considered. They were unlawful not because they commanded that which was unlawful and against the will of God, but because things in themselves lawful were commanded as parts of God's worship. Okay, listen to what he's saying. To wash the outward part of the cup or the plate, which is what the Pharisees did, and to wash hands before eating are things in respect of civil use very lawful. There's nothing wrong if you want to wash the outside of your plate. It's not wrong if you want to wash your hands. You should, right? Wash your hands before you eat a meat, uh, uh, before you eat food. That's not contrary to God's word. And yet, he says, are, uh, yet these are blamed by Christ, for, and no other reason can be rendered but this, that they were prescribed not as things indifferent or civil, but as matters pertaining to God's worship. They were making them binding on the conscience. It is not against God's word in some political, uh, politic regards to make distinctions of meats, drinks, and times, things like that, matters of circumstances. Yet Paul calls these doctrines of devils, 
because they are commanded as things wherein God should be worshipped. Right? Um, it's a very good argument he's making. Um, if, and again, why would, why would Christ fault the Pharisees if they were simply exercising their God-given prerogative to make binding laws on the conscience? Uh, and lastly, we'll just consider this one. He says, men in making laws are subject to ignorance and error. And therefore, when they have made a law as near as possible they can, agreeable to the equity of God's law, yet can they not assure themselves and others that they have failed in no point of circumstance. Um, we do not claim that our confession of faith, though we believe it's biblical, we don't claim it's inspired and therefore inerrant, all right? Nor do we claim that any such inerrancy could even be had by a church or a Christian. In fact, our, our confession says that every church is in some sense corrupted doctrinally um, or even has some moral corruption to some degree. There's no perfectly spotless entity uh, under the sun. And therefore, we can't say that in giving a law, even in our constitution, even our confession of faith, that we've done it absolutely entirely free from ignorance and error. We believe we are free, and we, we believe so in conscience. But we can't say absolutely we don't have error. And so he says, therefore, it is against reason that human law is being subject to defects, faults, errors, and manifold imperfections should truly bind conscience as God's law does, which are the rule of righteousness. All governors in the world, upon their daily experience, see and acknowledge this to be true, which I say, by reason that to their old laws they are constrained to put restrictions, amplifications, modifications of all kinds with new readings and interpretations. And that's what um, Luther said. He points to that. He goes, I'm not going to obey to popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves. I, I find it so remarkable when I meet Catholics and they're like, oh, the, the church has, uh, has a magisterium. And I'm like, are you acquainted with Roman Catholic history and the history of the popes? <laughs> um, because they so often contradicted themselves, and yet um, we don't have that with God's word, and therefore only his word uh, can truly bind conscience. Well, we're kind of running out of time here quickly. Before we end, are there any questions, comments? We will eventually get to um, what to do with unreasonable commands, um, things which overstretch authority, um, at, at what point you are allowed to disobey, um, even at what point are you allowed to defensively take up arms? We'll see that there's a place for that as well. Um, but, but for now, if there's no other questions, that's it. You guys are dismissed.